and grab a seat. And good morning. Oh my goodness. It's been so long. Uh, I'm so excited to be back with you guys. We had spring break and even just, I don't know, the stuff's been going on. So we haven't been together in a while. So glad that we're back together. Mainly because, mainly, mainly because I get to share with you a little tidbit that you may not know about a guy named Tom Hanks. Okay, now Tom Hanks is an actor, right? (laughs) He looks like a... I don't know, a hobo in this picture, but he is an actor, indeed. He's worth millions of dollars. He's been in many great films that you've probably enjoyed, such as Toy Story uh, or Saving Private Ryan or You've Got Mail, this kind of sequel to Sleepless in Seattle, in case you didn't know. Uh, But what you probably don't know about Tom Hanks is the fact that he's not only an accomplished actor, he also uses social media to post pictures that he takes of lost gloves, okay? He does this. He has an account that is dedicated to posting pictures of gloves. Way too many pictures of lost gloves. And Mike Tyson. And a spatula, actually. He posts pictures of gloves. Okay, this isn't even all. I have like eight. That's not even half of all of his pictures of gloves. And also a spatula. But he describes... In his own words, in an interview, someone asked him, they're like, hey, Tom, what's, what's up with the gloves, man? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Why are you insane? And he explained in his own words, hey, okay, this is my Tom Hanks impression. Hey, it's freezing outside. And it's no fun to have a bare hand when it's freezing cold. And yet, someone has lost a glove. That means half their life has disappeared for the course of the day. Sometimes they're pretty little knitted gloves. Sometimes they're hardworking gloves. What is a better metaphor for the loneliness of the city of a single lost glove? And the article that I was reading that told me about these things pointed out, well, they thought that a better metaphor for the loneliness of the city is a middle-aged man collecting pictures of lost gloves. I said... (laughs) fair, right? (laughs) And speaking of Tom Hanks, Mike Tyson. So Mike Tyson, also you may know because of his boxing career, right? He's a very successful boxer. He was the world champion at the age of 21, like millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. But Mike Tyson also collects a very strange thing. Mike Tyson does not collect gloves. Instead, he collects pigeons, okay? Mike Tyson has spent the better part of the last two decades, collecting way, way, way too many pigeons, okay? Pigeons. (laughs) That's his thing. And he has been asked about it as well, like, hey, Mike, what's up with the pigeons, bro? And he just kind of like, I like them. And that's pretty much it. Like, that's the only explanation anyone's ever gotten from him. No metaphor, just I like them. Well, okay. And you don't argue with a guy that has a tattoo on his face. Okay, so this guy loves pigeons. Tom Hanks loves gloves. What we've discovered is not only that these guys have these strange ideas, these strange, you know, collections and things. What I think is even stranger is the fact that we know this, right? Is the fact that I'm able to even point this out. The fact that I'm able to find literally hundreds of pictures of these guys with their strange little collections. Why am I able to access that kind of information? It's because these guys have reached such a level of success. They've reached such a level of influencing so many people that we now see everything about them. 
They've achieved the greatest success. They've landed on the big stage with the spotlight straight on them. And the reality is that spotlight that brings fame also will bring out every single flaw that you have. The reality is that as I increase my influence, as I expand my influence over more people, I increase my exposure. The more people I influence, the more people can see about who I am. We see their glove collecting. We see their pigeons. We also saw in Mike Tyson his inability to manage money. We saw him have a very high aggression level and a very low judgment level. And because of that, he winds up going bankrupt through hundreds of millions of dollars. We see Mike Tyson bite a dude's ear off and get this big, huge scandal. We see Mike Tyson go to prison for rape because he had high aggression, low judgment. And when he reached that stage, everyone saw it. The reality is that as we increase our influence, we increase our exposure. And sometimes what's exposed will completely destroy us. Completely destroy us. Now, many of us aren't necessarily expanding our influence over millions of people, but many of us have successfully expanded our influence into a dorm room, right, or an apartment or a house where you've got roommates. And as soon as you expanded your influence into that realm, you discovered you exposed in yourself just a complete lack of awareness of other people. You've exposed in yourself just a desire to feed your own things. You've exposed in yourself a selfishness, a disregard for your roommates. Many of us have expanded our influence over a new school, right? Whether we're at Blinn or A&M. And in that expansion, we've exposed in ourselves an inability to get our work done on time. We've exposed our desire to cheat, to get by. We've exposed our disrespect towards our professors. We've maybe expanded our influence into a relationship. And in doing so, we've exposed in ourselves a disregard for that person, our own selfishness, maybe our complete disregard for how to treat sexuality. The truth is, is that we are all continually expanding our influence. And so we are increasingly exposing ourselves. Even in the midst of success, we bring forth failure. Our victories make us vulnerable. So my question is, What do we do? How do we deal with this idea that we are constantly expanding? Well, how do we deal with the fact that we will be succeeding in lots of realms of life? And then as we succeed, we will influence more and more people. What do we do in the midst of success? How do we avoid the failures that we see bring down so many people? This semester, we're looking through the life of David. Right, this semester we've been looking at what makes David tick? What made him the man that he was? Because he was the one person in all of Scripture God described as a man after my own heart. He's the one guy that was so in line with the Lord that the Lord said, this, this is my man. And so we're trying to understand what gave him that heart, what built him. Because I want that heart for me. I want that heart for you. I want us to be men and women after God's own heart. So how did David respond in many different circumstances? We've looked at his response to sin and to rejection and to failure and all these different things. And a lot of them have been in a very negative light. It's like, what does he do with darkness? But this morning, what I want us to do is look in the life of David and look at how does he respond to success? How does he respond 
to an ever-expanding influence over more and more people? How does he respond in the midst of success that could so easily bring forth failure? What we see in the life of David is that as he is in the midst of success, as he becomes king over an entire nation, he commits himself to two goals. To seek God and to search himself. In the midst of success, David wanted to seek God and to search himself. And what we'll find is that he actually fails. But we'll get there. So we start off in 1 Samuel 31, and we see what brought about David's success. David found his success, honestly, in the disgraced suicide of another man. We see that Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Saul's in the middle of a battle. Saul's the crazy king, right? He's the first crazy king of Israel who probably took pictures of gloves, right? That's how insane Saul was. And he's in the middle of a battle and God is saying, no, Saul, your time is over. And so Saul's going to be defeated and he doesn't want to deal with that disgrace. He doesn't want to be defeated. And as he's being overwhelmed by this other army, he asks his, basically his assistant to kill him because it was the worst thing ever to commit suicide. His assistant says, no way. You're the king. You're the Lord's anointed. I will not have your death on my hands. So Saul says, fine. And he kills himself. Which for us, having been walking through the life of David all semester, we kind of are a little bit like, yay, right? (laughs) This is good, right? Like we've been wanting Saul to die, right? Saul's been chasing David all semester, all of David's life. Saul's been chasing him and chasing him, seeking to bring about his destruction, seeking to bring about his doom. And David's been having to hide in caves and in the desert. David's been on the run for years. And Saul's dead, right? The bad guy's gone. This is the moment that we think that David should be marching into Jerusalem, right? To claim his throne, Right? God promised to David years before, David, one day you will be king. And now the current king is dead. Therefore, David, this is your big moment, right? This is your parade. This is where you, your triumphal entry. This is the moment at the end of, you know, Avengers, where they're all just driving off in the cars, right? They beat the big alien and all that stuff. And then they're like, all right, well, see you guys later. And then they drive off, right? And they're weird cars and Hulk just kind of, rides on a motorcycle or something. I don't know. But they just, they go off, right? It's their big, yay, we made it moment, right? This is that moment where Elsa and Anna realize, wow, we are sisters and we can leave the gate open, right? And they're just so happy and they're partying and they're like, oh my goodness. And they learn to let it go and they're so excited. And they're like, wow, this is it, right? This is their big moment. This is the moment where Katniss and Peter are like, we murdered everyone. (laughs) Yes right? This is that big moment. This is when David should march into Jerusalem, take it over. He walks and says, hey, the king's in town. But instead what we see David do, he doesn't march in. Instead what he does is he goes before the Lord. He seeks God's will. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And the Lord said to Hebron. 
Now, we don't really know a lot of, you know, Israel geography. We're not really up to date on their major cities. Let me just tell you, though, Hebron was not the capital. Hebron was a, you know, it was a pretty cool city, but it was not the throne. When David goes before the Lord and says, hey, God, is this, is this it? Like, am I ready to be the king? God says no. God's basically telling David, wait. Don't go to Jerusalem. You wait in Hebron. And this is that moment where Katniss and Peter hear, there's another Hunger Games? Oh, man. And they cry or something. Someone gets shot. Right? This is, this is that moment where they're all set up for success. And then God says, no, you, you need to wait. And David says, oh, okay. So what we see is David actually goes to Hebron. He's so committed to following the Lord, to seeking the Lord in the midst of what should be his own success. He seeks the Lord and goes to Hebron. And what we find out is that eventually all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. And they said to him, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. This is awesome. David's chilling in Hebron. During that time, a bunch of other guys try to take over kingship, and they all wind up kind of just killing each other. So David rises to the top. They eventually go to him. But we don't need to forget that David was in Hebron seven and a half years. Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. At Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Years. David was in Hebron for seven and a half years. Saul was dead. The bad guy was defeated. Success was on David's doorstep, but he waited for seven and a half years. Why? Because he knew that in the midst of his success, he needed to seek the Lord first. That it wasn't up to him when to take the throne, it wasn't up to him when to go to Jerusalem. Instead, he sought the Lord's will because David realized something very, very crucial about his success. You see, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, that the Lord had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David realized something that we need to get, that his success was entirely from the Lord. That his success was entirely for the Lord. That he had been established by God for the sake of God's people. With that mindset, David realized, wow, it's not up to me when to rush in. It's not up to me what to do with this success. Instead, this success is from God. Therefore, this success is for God. Therefore, I will go before the Lord and ask him, What do you want me to do? I'm going to seek the Lord in the midst of my success. Because ultimately, it's not my success. So how do you seek the Lord? How do you go before him? How do you hear from him, you know, go to Hebron, go to Jerusalem, right? Right now, some of us are trying to figure out, where are we going to be this summer? Where are we going to be in the fall? What are we going to do in two years? What are we going to do in one year? 
And we would love to hear from the Lord, Hebron. Well, not Hebron, because that's way over there. Right? But we'd love to hear from the Lord, Dallas, right? Or Austin. We really want to hear Austin, right? So we want to hear those words from the Lord, but the reality is that the Lord doesn't speak like that as much anymore. Sometimes, but not as much as back then. So how do we listen to the Lord? How do we seek the Lord's will? We're going to talk about this idea in great depth next week. Next week, we're going to get into this time in David's life where he's seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord's will, wanting to know where the Lord wants him to go. We're going to dive in. It's going to be awesome. Next week. All right, a little teaser is if you are in the midst of a crisis trying to figure out your future, you can seek the Lord by talking to him in prayer. You can seek the Lord by listening to him through his word. And you can seek the Lord by consulting with his people. Talk to your Bible study leader. Talk to your friend. Talk to the Christian fellowship around you because those are God's people. He speaks through them as well. But like I said, next week we dive in. This week we focus more on David's second goal, which was in the midst of success. He didn't only seek the Lord, he also wanted to search himself. In the midst of success, he wanted to search himself. That's why we read at the very beginning, Lonnie read Psalm 139, where he says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. If, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. David is writing this psalm. He wrote Psalm 139 literally right after he became king. Right after 2 Samuel chapter 5, he wrote Psalm 139. He's on the peak of success. He's been made king over all of Israel. And this is what he says, God, search me. God, search me. Know my heart. Know my thoughts. Find the grievous things. Find the wrong things within me. Get rid of them. God, lead me in the way everlasting. David wrote this psalm immediately after becoming king and expanding his influence over millions of people. He knew that he didn't just need to seek the Lord. He needed to search himself, which sounds a little bit risky, right? Asking the Lord to expose our sin doesn't sound fun, <laughs> like a walk in the park. It also doesn't sound like something we want to do if we're on the big stage, right? If I'm just in a new relationship with a super awesome girl, or I just moved into a house with some awesome guys, or I just came to a new school with all these awesome classes, or I'm in this new organization, or in this new thing, or new that, Man, that's generally not the moment that I want the Lord to expose my sin, right? That's generally not the moment that I want all of my flaws to be like, peekaboo, and be, <laughs> right? That's a bad moment. One of the first times I ever spoke at one of our main services here at Grace, I was over at Southwood, okay? I was over at Southwood speaking at the Southwood main service, and I used this introductory example about a guy named Ernest Shackleton, who sailed to the South Pole. Okay, Ernest Shackleton was this crazy guy, explorer. He went to the South Pole, had this crazy expedition. There's all these books about it. Really cool story. I enjoyed the story, wanted to share it because I was a history major, all that great stuff. Okay, so I shared it. And as I was sharing it at the beginning of my talk at Southwood Main Service, I had a slip. When I was describing this one moment where Ernest and his crew got stranded on an island 
with a bunch of primitive natives. For some reason, as I was telling the story, when I got to the word natives, my mind just blanked out. And so I began to scramble mentally to try to think, hey, what was that word? And as I was sharing the story, talking about, oh, they're on this island and they're all these, what came out was cannibals. <laughs> Which was not accurate, okay? That was, that was not a fair assessment of that situation. But it's what I said. And immediately, immediately, I thought, that was bad. That was bad. <laughs> Not the right word. <laughs> Not the right word, Jacob. What are you doing? But I moved on, right? I thought, you know, live and learn. This is minute two out of like a 40-minute talk, so I just got to keep full steam ahead. And so I kept going, you know, shared the whole story, you know, the whole story and the whole sermon and all that stuff. Went great, had great feedback, talked to a lot of people, and it, it was awesome, okay? <laughs> just move on until the next day. When I received an email from a concerned member of Grace Bible Church uh, who happened to be very well acquainted with the story of Ernest Shackleton. And he let me know, uh, reprimanded me just a bit about my misrepresentation of his story. Right? This guy spent paragraphs laying out the things that I had said wrong, mainly that one word. And just I had presented in this wrong light and all these things. He eventually, the email expanded to not only include that one critique, but he also just let me know that my style, my preaching style in general, made him, quote, cringe. Okay? <laughs> and in that moment, I thought to myself, well, my error has been exposed. <laughs> right? In that moment, I realized, okay, this, we're just getting it all out there. And to this day, I will never, ever forget the word natives. Ever. <laughs> ever. Until the day I die. Hopefully by cannibals, because that would be very ironic. Right? Now, I, I truly believe that my error was wrong. Right? My error was justified. It was right for him to call me out. And the reality is that as painful as that exposure was, it was necessary it was necessary for me. I am grateful, appreciative. I had breakfast with the guy because I was so grateful that he called me out. Even though it was painful in that moment, his exposure of my error allowed me, drove into me a stronger diligence towards accuracy. It made me much more committed to be disciplined with my words. It drove into me a sense of greater humility with my audience, with my people. That exposure was painful, but it was crucial. Because if it didn't come then, I don't know where I'd be now. Maybe I would have had a bigger slip up down the road. The reality is that David knows, man, I'm on the, I'm on the precipice of success. I'm on the peak. And it's just going to take one little push to get me over the edge. As I'm influencing millions of people, my exposure has never been greater. So therefore, Lord, please, you expose me. God, work in my heart. Lord, show me where are my grievous ways. Because David was incredibly 
successful. David took the nation of Israel from, they had a total land area, total boundaries, was about 6,000 square miles when David took over. When David ended his reign, he had expanded Israel to about 60,000 square miles. David established trade routes. He destroyed the foreign idols. David won battle after battle after war after war. David was the greatest king Israel would ever have, the most successful king, the most influential king, one of the most influential men of all time. And so he knew in Psalm 139, at the very beginning of his reign, God, you need to expose me. God, you need to search me. God, you need to get rid of those grievous ways because those elements are going to be on the foundation of who I am, on the foundation of my character. And all of my success and all of my praise and all of my blessings will be built upon that foundation. So God, if there's, if there's just the littlest crack, God, if there's just the smallest sin, God, I know over time that will ruin me. That will destroy me. David realized what we often forget, that we are not destroyed generally by a sudden act. We're not generally destroyed by just one big mistake. Instead, what takes us down, what brings failure into the midst of our success, is the gradual accumulation over time of unrepented sin. Slowly but surely, if you allow sin to sit in your life, if you allow it to sit just on the foundation of who you are, as you build success after success, after organization, after job, after marriage, after home, it's all going to fall apart because you didn't deal with that foundational issue. David says, God, get it out. Get it out. Because he knew that we were taken down by that mistake on top of mistake, on top of compromise, on top of compromise. Weird glove photo over weird glove photo, right? Those are the things that build up and destroy us. That's how sin works. It's a lot like this awesome performance by a guy named Reggie Watts. Crazy. (laughs) 
But instead of sweet, awesome beatbox sounds, <laughs> on our lives we get built up with mistakes, right? Instead of it being some really cool, you know, glove photo or pigeon coop, whatever, we build on top of our lives. It builds and gradually builds and builds and builds, and that's what destroys us. It accumulates over time. There are fundamental issues, fundamental sins that often creep into the bottom, the very foundation of who we are. Chuck Swindoll, in his book that I'm using extensively for this series, he describes these foundational sins. He quotes actually another pastor in talking about how there's really four big pieces that creep into our lives right at the beginning of our success that just build and build and build. He describes them as four S's. He says that they are silver, sloth, sex, and self. Silver, sloth, sex, and self. Describing the things that build into our lives. Think about any high-profile leader failure. Right? Think about anyone who like, rose, rose to fame and then blah, 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 like, fell apart. Politician, uh, famous actor, musician, whatever. These people rise up and they fall because of at least one of those things. I guarantee you. Silver, sloth, sex, or self. This is why Paul told the Corinthians that he disciplines his body. He keeps it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote like all the Bible, right? Apostle Paul, who did so many amazing things, tells the Corinthians, I discipline myself. Why? Because after I preach to others, because as I step up onto stage after stage after stage, I know that there is a very good chance that I could disqualify myself. I could lose out on ministry. I could lose out on blessing. I'm not going to lose my salvation, but I'm going to lose opportunities to serve the Lord. My success is from God for God. I can be disqualified from that success. I can be disqualified from God using me. Therefore, I discipline myself. I search myself. I look for that silver. I look for that sloth. I look for that sex. I look for that self. I look for those sins that could creep into my foundation and destroy everything that God builds upon it. David saw this in the life of Saul. The king right before him who just committed suicide, David saw this in Saul. He saw this gradual building of sin, this unrepentant sin that eventually brought Saul down. Saul started out pretty great, but he thought a little bit too highly of himself, a little prideful. And then he gathered for himself just a few too many chariots, just a little bit more than what God commanded. Just, his army was a little big. And then he gathered for himself just a few foreign wives, just a few just a couple concubines. <laughs> no big deal, right? He gathered for himself these things and it built and built and built and built until at the end, he's disgraced and he commits suicide. He disqualified himself. His mistakes build, his compromises build until he eventually disobeys the Lord's command about a certain offering. Samuel goes to Saul and says, you're done. You're done. God will no longer use you. God will no longer use your line to bring forth his Savior. You're done, Saul. Search yourself. 
Look for these sins. Look for these foundational elements. Like David said he would, right? David saw it in Saul, right? He committed himself. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to search myself. David is all good, right? He's set up to succeed. We're so excited. David's going to do great. And then in verse 13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. More sons and daughters were born to David. Goes into a little bit of a, a brief genealogy, talking about all these sons and daughters that David had, all from different wives, all from different women, all born out of sin. We saw this a few weeks ago. David goes to Abigail, right? David had one wife, Michael. That's what the Lord has always commanded for his people. One wife, one man, one woman, one marriage, one husband, one wife. David had one wife. She gets taken by Saul. So he goes, he rescues Abigail, if you'll remember a few weeks ago. And he takes Abigail as his wife and another woman at the exact same time. How romantic. Two wives. Then eventually he says, I want Michael back. He brings her back, three wives. Then he comes from Hebron, Gribs, concubines, other wives, marries foreign women. Eventually David has hundreds of women that are just his sexual objects. Why? Because he allowed unrepented sin to sit and build and build and build. And David fell hard. When he dies, he's a disgrace. His family is horrible. His kingdom is wrecked. Because even though he committed himself to searching himself, he didn't. He didn't. But what's truly successful about David isn't the fact that he gained perfection isn't the fact that he was able to search and find every sin and knock it all out. What was so amazing about David, what was so successful about David, what made David a man after God's own heart was his desire to seek, his desire to search, and his willingness in the midst of sin to run back to God and repent. That even when he gets caught in the midst of sexual sin, even when he gets caught in the midst of pride, even when he gets caught in the midst of all these different sins, they build and they build and they build and they threaten to destroy him, he runs to God. That's what set him apart from Saul. That's what sets him apart from so many people in our Bible. He runs back to God. He doesn't run away from God. He runs to God. The name of that is repentance, meaning you see what's wrong and you run the opposite direction. So my challenge to you this week Man, as we're entering the last half of our semester, as we're kind of going forth straight into summer, hoping to succeed and finish out the semester, my challenge to you is to search yourself. Find that sin. Don't feel the need to abolish all of it on your own or else God's not really going to love you. But when you find it, repent. Run the opposite direction. Search yourself. Ask the Lord to show you, are you holding on to silver? Are you holding on to your finances so tightly? Are you trusting God at all with your money? If you're being convicted of that right now, repent. Run the opposite direction. Over the next few weeks, you're going to be surrounded by students who are trying to raise support to go on summer mission trips. We send people to East Asia, to trade winds, to South Asia, just all over the place. Greece. You're sitting next to people that are going, that need to raise support. Give towards that. Find one of your friends who's going. We have a box in the back where you can just drop in some money. Repent if you're just holding on to your finances so tightly that you're not willing to give at all. Repent. Run the opposite direction by giving. Maybe search yourself, find, am I addicted to 
sloth. In other words, laziness. How much time are you wasting? How much time have you just piddled away? How much glory do you actually give God in every pursuit? Do you glorify him? Do you seek to glorify him in your school and in your work and your relationships? If not, repent. Run the opposite direction. Ask the Lord to expose that, lead you in the correct way. Map out your week. See how your time falls. Figure out how you can use it for the Lord. Search yourself. Maybe finding yourself an addiction to sex. Are you misusing sex? Do you have the wrong view of sex? Whether you're in a relationship or out of one, how are you dealing with sex? Are you glorifying the Lord with the way that you view and treat sexuality? If not, repent. Run the opposite direction. Find a friend to be your accountability partner. Talk to your Bible study leader. If you're not in one of our Bible studies, just come talk to me. I will hook you up. Run the opposite direction. Repent of that exposed sin. Look, search yourself. Are you addicted to yourself? This is where a lot of us fall. Do you hoard your time and your energy for yourself? Or are you willing to give it to the Lord? Are you willing to offer those things for God's use? Are you willing to take the successes you've had in your organization or in your classes or in your work? Are you keeping them in here? Are you saying, God, this is from you, therefore it's for you. God, I want to offer up all these things to you. We have a great opportunity right now. You can apply to become a Bible study leader, growth group leader, essentials leader, do-loss leader. If you're finding yourself hoarding your time and energy, repent. Run the opposite direction. Give your time. Maybe here in college. Maybe somewhere else. But in college, right here, right now, you can apply on our website to be a growth group leader. I don't want you to do these things to make you better people. I don't want you to do these things out of some guilt or obligation. I want you to do these things out of the realization that even if you fail at every single level, God still loves you. Even if you fail on every single S, God still loves you. The beauty about the Christian faith is the fact that Jesus Christ came, lived the perfect life that we want to live but can't, died the death that we deserve because of our sin, rose again showing God's power over that sin, over that death, so that if I would just place my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I've got it forever. That's the beauty about Christianity. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion is the fact that we have free grace, free forgiveness for those who would trust Christ. So we do these things. We repent, not out of fear that I'm going to lose my salvation, not out of fear that I never was saved, but instead out of gracious love towards the God who saved us. No matter what I do, no matter what I say. So as we worship, as we sing a couple more songs, I would encourage you to stop for a moment And just ask the Lord, God, where's my grievous way? God, search my heart. God, search my thoughts. Expose the sin in me. Lord, as I continue to expand my influence, God, I know my exposure will increase. So God, you expose me. 
So let's pray. Lord, we come before you as people who are full of faults. God, I come before you as someone who has so many mistakes. God, so many errors. God, so many things that need to be exposed. God, I thank you that you are gracious to love us in the midst of our failure. God, as we sang just a few minutes ago, God, you are strong in our weakness. God, you provide success in the midst of our failure. So Lord, thank you for that. God, thank you that we can come to you as your children who are loved, not as citizens who are under you and have to please you. God, we thank you that you've given us grace. But we're in your family. If you would, take a moment. Just ask the Lord, as a loving father would, to, to point out where are you in the wrong? What maybe minor sins are just slowly accumulating in your life? Ask the Lord to convict you of that right now. And if you would, ask the Lord to show you a way out. Christ tells us that there's no temptation too great. There's nothing too overwhelming in this world that he hasn't already overcome. Ask the Lord to show you how, how do you navigate those waters? How, do, how does he guide you in the way everlasting? Ask the Lord to maybe provide a conversation with a friend or a, an accountability partner or an opportunity to speak with a leader. Maybe an opportunity to just pray to him and search his word. Ask the Lord to show you the way out, to give you a practical action plan to expose that sin and to repent, to run in the opposite direction. Ask the Lord to show you that right now.